Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash, making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no Okay, this is Escaping Society, Episode 5, The Dog. My name is Gumby. I'm Teresa. And I'd like to start this episode with a story. Um, Kids often ask me, is this a true story? And the answer I've started giving them is every story is true if the listener knows how to find the truth in it. So this is a true story. In the mid-1970s, on the year I was born, my dad robbed a bank in New England. He's passed away now, so I think I can tell the story without getting him in any trouble. He had an accomplice, and my mom went along for the ride. Well, anyway, he robbed this bank, and his accomplice went into the the bank and told the manager that um, we are holding your family hostage at gunpoint. Call your home, and we want this certain amount of money. Uh, The amount of money was not much by today's standards, but I guess back then it was a pretty good amount. Um... So my dad was the one who actually, they found out where the bank manager lived, went to his house, and held the family hostage. The bank manager called his house, confirmed this, they got the money. They got away. My dad, being the alcoholic he was, um, and my dad was kind of uh, looking back, I never thought of him in these terms growing up, I just thought he was kind of a big a-hole, but he was sort of the Dean Moriarty from Jack Kerouac's On the Road type. He was born in 1940. And uh, he really pushed the boundaries of legality, um, sexuality. He was bisexual. He really pushed all kinds of boundaries in ways that were really um, out there for back then. So they robbed this bank. My dad gets rip-roaring drunk and starts bragging about it to everybody at the bars. You know, it's kind of common knowledge. He's spreading it everywhere. The FBI gets so close to um, catching them that they actually knock on their door my parents, that is, and ask them questions, interrogate them, but they never have enough evidence to get them. But the heat's getting pretty pretty thick, so my mom and my dad decide it's time to go to Mexico. They go all the way to Mexico, and there they just, my dad, um, blows money all over the place. He He's always drunk. Um, I've heard a story about him hitting this um, poor farmer's pig, and he felt so bad about it drunk and that he gave a huge chunk of money to this guy. I mean, huge. And I can't put a figure on that. I don't know what that figure is, but that was part of the story as I heard it. He uh, got a crush on a chambermaid that was working at the hotel they were staying at and started buying her jewelry. Um, Just blowing money everywhere. My mom is pregnant with me at the time. 
So ironically, my most interesting dog story, and yes, there will be a dog in the story, is probably the story that I have no memory of. Um, so they blow every single penny. They don't have any money left and decide it's time to leave Mexico. And while they're in Mexico, by the way, they find a puppy, this fluffy white puppy whom they name Shane for reasons I don't know. So they take this dog and they hitchhike all the way back to New England where they're from. And I heard stories about this growing up. Um, my mom was never one to be able to keep a secret, so this was just a story I grew up with. I knew this had happened, um, and I heard about them, my mom, my dad, and me, still not born, and this dog Shane, hitchhiking back up to New England. Um, I was born, got a little bit older, still a little toddler, and they started putting me in this, these sled races. Um, and Shane was really good. They'd open up Liverwurst at the end of the finishing line, and Shane would win a lot of these races. I had a trophy growing up um, that I don't remember being in the race, but I still had the trophy. <laughs> wait, I, wait, wait. So they, they opened up a can of Liverwurst, and the dog just ran? That's the way I understood the story, yes. <laughs> he smelled the Liverwurst, yeah. Um, and again, I don't remember any of this. This is the story as I heard it growing up. Um one time after the race, my dog, or I guess this was probably my parents' dog, was eating and being a little toddler, I walked up behind him, yanked his tail, and he turned around and just bit the crap out of me, almost took my eye out. It took 16 stitches. Um, had the photographs of my face all patched up, and I've still got the scar on my face. Luckily, he didn't take out my eye. But the really relevant part of that part of the story for me, other than the scar I carry, is how my parents reacted to that. A lot of people would say, you know, if, if my dog bit my kid, I'd shoot him. My parents were a little deeper than that with their relationship with this dog. They understood this was not a violent dog. This was an unfortunate incident. This dog was never reprimanded. They understood that I needed to be reprimanded. And I grew up with that kind of ethic with animals. Um, to me, that says a lot about the respect for the dog. The dog is not some savage beast. This is an unfortunate incident, and I crossed a line. So... We kept the dog. A um, little bit later, we moved down to North Carolina and had to give the dog up. I know that was really hard on my mom, especially, because um, they moved into a house they couldn't have the dog. And that's where Shane leaves the story. But I grew up with the idea of a dog as a companion, especially on escaping society um, scenarios, you know, like part of an event that involved breaking the law, then hitchhiking across the country with a dog. You know, I grew up thinking like, wow, how cool it is to have a companion, a dog companion. Um, I grew up with dogs. I remember when we lived in Greensboro, I would always run into Greensboro, North Carolina. I would always run into dogs around the neighborhood. I remember finding this one hound dog, and this was before I could read well, um, before I could read good and stuff. And I saw this tag, and the tag said, rabbits. That's the way I read it. And I remember all day walking around with this dog in all the woods I could find, waiting for him to just jump out and grab a rabbit. And, like, I was I was thinking I had this professional rabbit hunting dog. Um, it was only later that my mom informed me the tag actually said rabies. It was his rabies tag. <laughs> so that explained why he never caught a rabbit. Aww. But we found the owner for that dog and returned it. <laughs> and uh, had another dog as I got older, Sheena. She was a husky. I'd tire her to the front of my bike. And, you know, she'd pull the bike 
it was what a husky loves to do to pull and it was really fun until i decided it was time to stop and then it wasn't so easy i didn't know how to train a dog and she didn't always know when to stop so that got terrifying quite a few times i didn't do that for very long um another dog that i had a little bit later in life as i got to be a teenager was this lab that i i found in a uh animal shelter and you were supposed to pay a fee to get this this dog to adopt him I really love this dog it was just chocolate lab with green eyes and it just spoke to me I couldn't stand seeing this dog in a cage and I wanted it to come home with me and uh at that time my mom was already kind of an accomplice for my little crimes my small crimes so I came up with this idea like mom why don't you go in there and ask them some questions like keep them busy and I'm gonna get this dog out of this cage I'm gonna stick this little puppy in my jacket and I'll wait in the car for you so we did it and I got Banjo um, named him Banjo after that Creedence Clearwater Revival song bring a song and a smile for the banjo um, and Banjo wow he taught me a lot he got he would follow me around the neighborhood and he got hit by a car one time when he was following me all these dogs popped out of this trailer park and started fighting him and a car showed up they all scattered. Banjo got hit. His leg got broken really bad. Um, tried to take him to the vet. We didn't have the money. And this might have been the beginning of my uh, disdain for modern medicine when the vet informed me that they would do nothing for Banjo without the money. So these were the healers in my community. These were the people that valued money over my dog's leg. And I get it. Everybody's got to eat. But somehow I don't think these people were on the verge of starvation. Um so I did what I could. We got his leg in a cast. It ended up going bad, and it had to get amputated. Um, Banjo had two legs, and he got hit by a car again. And I know how irresponsible that sounds, but that's the way it was when I was a kid. We were out in the country, and everybody's dogs just ran free. This was before poop bags. This was before leashes. And, you know, if you had a dog, it just kind of ran around. So Banjo got hit again and lost another leg on the same side. But I'll always remember his spirit. He had two legs on the same side, and he would run. I couldn't catch him with a 10-speed bicycle. Um, and he'd time his stops where he could lean against a tree to pee. Oh, my God. It was the coolest thing to watch. Um, wow. Yeah, and Banjo, God, this was when I first had to move into a car when I was younger. My dad was um, dying, and our family was just in crisis. We had to move into this house with this um, other family and couldn't take Banjo and ended up having to give him to an animal shelter. And I'll always remember the day that he was put to sleep and how it felt, just how overwhelmed I felt as a teenager um, that he was dying among strangers. That's still one of the guiltiest things I have in my life, that I let this dog that had so much faith in me um, die. And I didn't even have the guts to be there and have a friendly face while it happened. Um but yeah, it was a chaotic time. So dogs have been teachers to me all along my, my life. Um, they've taught me how to live in the moment. They've taught me what it means to be a, a friend, to really have that level of loyalty, something you never find in people, not that level of loyalty. They've taught me when I failed um, that ideal and how that feels and to try not to do that again because it's just it's a burden you carry. Um, and what a responsibility it is. You know, they give you everything. They're part of your pack. And to take that seriously, you know, they, they call the best out from us. Um, so, yeah, I've always respected dogs as teachers. Um, 
had another dog, a black lab, Sherwood, and she was a real personality. I'd pick blackberries sometimes, and I'd put them in a bucket, and Sherwood sure, sure be, would be sitting there. And uh, I'd turn around, there'd be no blackberries in the bucket. <laughs> and Sherwood would be facing away from the bucket, like she wasn't interested, but I'd see the stain on her chin. Um, yeah, she was hilarious. She she would pick a pear out in a pear tree. We had these pear trees growing in the yard then. And she would fixate on one pear. I don't know what it was about that one pear, but she would work and work for hours, shaking different branches, uh, trying to climb the tree until she shook loose that one pear. Uh, she was scared of strange things like kitchen floors. She'd come in the house, but she would not go in the kitchen. And it wasn't the, 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 the linoleum because she'd go in the bathroom, just not the kitchen. Uh, scared of thunder like a lot of dogs. Scared of snakes, anything that looked like a snake. If there was a branch that looked like a snake, she'd go out of the trail. But she was a really good dog, and being an outdoor dog just kind of disappeared one day, as most of my dogs did. They live like five, six, seven years, and then move on to whatever they moved on to. Um, the first time I had an adventure with a dog in a car was a little dog, a little beagle that we named Sticklet. And we called her Sticky because she had bubblegum in her hair when we found her. She was a little puppy, and she had a lot of spunk. Like, she would back down dogs much bigger than her. So there's this commercial at the time in the 80s, skinny sticklets packed with flavor. See how skinny taste how fat about this gum. So, sticklet. Um, a friend of mine and I took a trip um, out to California, a road trip, and we took Sticky along and went all the way out to California. And she began to teach me how a dog can be a good companion for panhandling. I didn't actually panhandle, but we tie her to a tree in the shade when we'd go in a place. I'd come out and there'd be like burgers and fries and sodas of all things. I mean, bizarre stuff dogs shouldn't have sometimes, but clustered around her, people would leave food. <laughs> and this wasn't trying to get food. This was just that she was tied to a shade tree. Um, and this happened repeatedly. So I started thinking, wow, you know, how strange it is that I think I could sit under the shade tree and maybe not get a bite of food and I think we're all just getting so tired of each other. People don't have much sympathy for other people sometimes, but dogs, they seem so innocent. You know, they haven't done anything wrong. So a dog can be definitely a pull on the heartstrings for people who might give money or food. Um, lost her in California, and that broke my heart. I'd just kind of leave her running around sometimes when I'd go in places, and she'd always be there when we came out. But came out one day, she wasn't there. Ended up going to Northern California, and on the way back, I decided I'd stop one more time. Went to the animal shelter. She wasn't there. And right as I'm going out, I decided to ask the guy, has anybody brought in a beagle? And um, he said, yeah, actually, and here's the phone number. And we got in contact with the person, went to the house, and the woman was very, you know, hesitant to give the beagle back, thinking we neglected um, Sticky, and depending on how you think um, dogs should be treated, I guess you could say we did. But Sticky ran past her. She was so happy to be back with us. And the woman's <laughs> like, well, I guess you're not treating her so badly. So <laughs> Sticky returned to us until she died. She lived a pretty good long life. Another thing Sticky talk me, taught me was uh, when I had to move out of that house that I described with Banjo, um, we took Sticky with us. Sticky was a small dog, and they said we could bring one dog and... Yeah, that was another hard part of that is deciding which dog, you know, which kid are you going to bring with you. Um, so Sticky came with us. 
and she was so stubborn. She would not do anything I asked. And um, I ended up getting a house with a friend of mine. We were there for a month, and I decided I'd come back and get sticky after leaving her for a month with the, at this house. She jumped in the car, and after that, it's like she was immediately trained. Um, I could move my eyes. I could move my head, and she would just constantly watch me and look for ways to do what I wanted. Um, and I've seen that happen with my current dog, Sherlock, too. Um, dogs, it's so important for them to be included in the pack. Um, yeah. And I went on to live in my car shortly after that, after Sticky had passed, and had a couple dogs with me. Um, there was this one dog that got picked up by a friend of mine named Marty Queen, and uh, everybody said, wow, this dog is so ugly, it looks like Marty Queen. So his name became Marty Queen, which was the name of a guy I knew. <laughs> um, and he rode around with me in that car for a while until I gave him up to friends, and they didn't take very good care of him, and he got hit by a car, unfortunately. Um, had another dog that got passed around from all my friends, and everybody renamed him until by the time he got to me, I decided to stick all the names together. And let's see if I can remember this. His name was Huckle Knuckle Chuckle Fuckle Buckle Barry Booger Finn Hound Head. And I called him Huck uh, <laughs> for obvious reasons. And yeah, he stayed with me for a little while and I found a home for him. Um, so that was my, my first experience living out of a vehicle with a dog and realizing what a good companion a dog is. They don't complain. It doesn't feel like to them like the car is too small. They just want to be with their people. And I didn't understand it that, that at the time. If I had, I wouldn't have given up the dogs. Um, it was only later that I understood that. Um, so I ended up being a caretaker at this house, at this park. And I was starting to have questions about having a dog. You know, the whole captive animal, it was starting to give me an ethical dilemma. I wasn't comfortable with the idea of having an animal and making it do things against its will. Because I was also developing this ethic, I was questioning the hierarchy of life. I didn't believe people were on the top anymore. And if I really believed we were all equals, isn't the way that we treat dogs a lot like slavery? I mean, <laughs> one of the things that occurred to me is one of the racist things you would say to you know, a person of color is to call them boy. You know, we rob them of the right to be a man. So, hey, hey, boy. You know, isn't that the typical, like, southern thing you say when you're a bigot? What do we call animals? We rob them the right of adulthood, too. Come here, boy. Hey, boy. They never get to grow up. You know, it's a way of, like, kind of saying they're less than us. And I know, I, I call Sherlock a boy, too. It's affectionate. But maybe it was affectionate back in the 1800s with slaves sometimes, too, you know? It wasn't a term of hatred. It was just a term of, you're not as good as me. So I was starting to question a lot of stuff nobody around me was questioning. You know, if animals are my equal, how can I justify a dog? I shut them against their will sometimes when I leave the house. For their safety, granted, but what right did I have? Do I want somebody shutting me in a room against my will? Um, and I know I tell this to people a lot and they think I'm crazy, but I'm glad I asked these kind of questions because this is exactly the kind of stuff I want to develop, is how can I be on equal terms with the life around me? Um... And spaying and neutering, there's another one. We don't want to just have puppies and kittens everywhere. That's not fair to them. But so long ago, we've taken these animals as possessions and taken on this responsibility that maybe we should have never taken. 
that I didn't know whether it was right to spay or neuter a dog anymore. So with all these questions, I didn't want to own a dog. Even saying that, own a dog. I didn't want to own a living being. I didn't feel right about that. Nonetheless, my mom had a little puppy, and it had one blue eye, and she had just seen on an episode of Little House on the Prairie that a dog with one blue eye is supposed to be a sacred spirit protector. So, you know, with a uh, recommendation like Little House on the Prairie, she decided I should have this dog. So against my better judgment, I took this dog, and I had always made friends with dogs growing up. They weren't trained, but they did basically what I wanted them to do because we had a good friendship. Heech was an exception. Heech, I guess I was just too busy in my life. I didn't raise him right. I don't know if he was born neurotic, but he pushed my edges so much. Um, And we had a very bad relationship. It was like he was a bad roommate. We couldn't live together. Mm. This dog was like neurotic. And the more angry I got with him, the more neurotic and insecure he got. And I eventually had to find a new home for him. And I swore I would never have another dog. Um, I just thought that was it. That was the sign. I'm not supposed to have a dog. Um, And that's the way it stood until one time I went to a bar and I was sitting down at the bar and I sat down next to this guy and, you know, I'm drinking my beer and making conversation like, so what do you do? Turns out he's a dog trainer and, you know, I kind of roll my eyes like, oh boy, you know, here's the, the Nazi, the guy that, you know, imposes his will on the dog. And I don't know if it was the beer or if it was just the right time in my life to hear this, but he pointed out something I'd never thought of. He said, a lot of people don't understand that dogs are not human. It's not respectful to the dog to treat them as a human. A dog is a different kind of animal. Dogs and wolves, canines in general, thrive on hierarchy. That's different than people. You know, I'm an anarchist. I I definitely don't thrive on hierarchy, but the dog does. And to respect the dog, I need to understand he's not human and treat him like a dog. The dog is secure when you're a strong leader. And that made me think of Heech. No wonder he was so neurotic. I wouldn't be his leader. Mm. I didn't understand that at the time. I, that poor dog, I made him neurotic. As I see so many dogs around me now that are owned by people and they're crazy. They're neurotic. They're barking incessantly. They're just, if you open the door, they escape. I mean, that right there tells you something. They're trying to escape. A lot of those, those people are treating dogs like other people. And I guess that got me thinking like, oh, there's another way to be with a dog. It's important to train a dog. I ended up getting the dog I have now. Um, my ex-girlfriend bought him for $80. She was thinking, oh, it'd be great to have a dog in our lives. And, you know, he should be your dog because I can't really take responsibility for a dog. So anyway, it happened. And <laughs> I started studying up on how to train a dog. Sherlock was the first dog I ever really tried to train. And I broke up with my ex-girlfriend. Sherlock came with me, lived in a car, um, And I had all this time to train Sherlock. So Sherlock has been my companion for going on almost nine years now. And he's been through the ringer. He's been, um, like, living in a car with me. He's been uh, backpacking with me. He just kind of goes everywhere. And because I've trained him, he can go most places I go. He, I think, has picked up on some of my social anxiety. He's kind of... uh, like barks at people, he's extra protective, half boxer, half uh, German short-haired pointer. 
but Sherlock's been a really good dog. Um, is there anything else we want to say about Sherlock? I know there's so much to say. <laughs> well, he's he's definitely got a personality. Um, I guess, what kind of challenges maybe did you have at first, like living in a car with him? Well, I want to talk more about this um, in the podcast, but I'll start now talking about the time I had. I had all this time, and I started reading books by Caesar Milan, The Dog Whisperer. Um, so yeah, I just had time to train him. We got along really well in the car. Um, I started feeling bad that he was living in this car with me and it was a bad time in my life. I felt like everything was falling apart. I'd just broken up in this relationship. Then I was having trouble at work and then I got social anxiety, so I couldn't work and everything was falling apart around me internally and externally. And then Sherlock's a puppy, so he's not doing what I want him to. He's pushing his edges and challenging me, and I'm losing my temper and getting really mad at him. Um, And I remember one day that I called him, and I was furious. I was getting ready to to go to work. There was a camp about to start. The kids were about to show up, and he wouldn't come. It was the first time that he ran into the woods and would not come out of fear of me. And I decided my life was just in shambles. I needed to get him a better home because I knew I felt so bad. He was he tried hard to be a good dog, and he was a puppy. He just didn't understand things, and I was intolerant with him. So luckily, my mom took him, thinking I would probably want him back someday. And indeed, I did. Mm-hmm. And again, that switch I saw was sticky. As soon as I got him back, he was really, really trying to please me. Um, about the worst thing you can do to a dog is break them up from their pack. You think your dog might be suffering because he's with you. Maybe he doesn't get the best food. Maybe he lives in a car. Chances are that dog wants to be with you. Um, And any problems you have are communication problems. The dog doesn't understand what you want. So, yeah, Sherlock. And I like to think about the shared history we have with dogs. Um, You know, at first I was thinking about how we domesticated animals and You know, that seemed very oppressive. We gained control of the animals. We started taking control of who they breeded with, developing these different breeds of dogs and where they could go. Um, But then I started running into an alternate history, an alternate story. And I don't know which one's truer. I, I imagine there's some truth in between the two. Again, every story's true if you know how to find the truth in it. But that the dogs began to domesticate themselves, that the dogs, you know, maybe it was a a dog that was not welcome in the pack anymore, low man on the totem pole, and just started following the people around and realized like, oh, this is my new pack. This is the way I can eat. They, they leave scraps. You know, maybe they begin to throw me scraps. Um, so that idea that we evolved together, you know, over these I don't know how long they say now, maybe 10,000 years or so, really is a beautiful thing, you know, that we have this symbiotic relationship with the dog. The dog has helped shape us, and we've obviously shaped the dog, and that over time, we've just become this unit, this pack. I wonder how dogs, how much dogs have taught us. Some of the things that we think are human now have come from the dog tribe. Um, And I agree that dogs are are man's best friend, you know, open that up to humanity's best friend right up there with fire. Um, So, yeah, I think about dogs differently now. And Teresa, do you want to talk about what it's like to have a dog as a homeless person? 
Well, sure. I uh, I actually didn't have a dog growing up at all. In fact, my mom's kind of afraid of dogs. So I grew up with kind of that associative fear um, that she had. And I just kind of, if I saw a dog, I maybe interacted it with it. And if it was a kind animal to me, I would, of course, hang out with it more. And uh, Sherlock, though, our dog now has been my most interaction with a dog and um, with us living in first a trailer and then a tiny house that was like a converted garden shed and now in the van um, a lot of it has kind of been like dog on the road you know like whether we're driving somewhere from our our former home or driving now in our van Dog on the road. <laughs> Dog on the road. So yeah, so Sherlock has been uh, very adaptive, and with with regard to any issues that you might have, um, not having a yard. I mean, I feel like Sherlock is really adaptive with just wherever we go. He's like, "Is this home now?" Okay, and he like sniffs stuff, and we go for walks, and we get him in, you know interested in the land and. I think he just feels like the whole world is his home, and I, I kind of feel like that myself. Gumby, what else do you have to say about any homeless dog issues? I'd just say that, uh, you know, there's a lot in common whether you're homeless or whether you have a home, if you have a dog. And, of course, there's some differences, but I have found that most of the differences between having a dog without a home and with a home are to your benefit as far as your relationship with your dog goes. For instance, homelessness often goes with unemployment. You have time to be with your dog. Um, this is something that feels natural to a dog. A dog doesn't understand when you have to go away. You know, to them, you are with your pack. You sleep with your pack. You travel with your pack. You're with your pack, period. So you get to have more of that life with a dog when you're homeless. And, yeah, just all the consistency. And you get to, even though you're traveling in different places, you get to implement routine. So there's enough familiarity um, for instance, we take Sherlock on a walk every morning, half hour walk, feed him right after that. He just, he knows the ropes and it gives him a feeling of, and me a feeling of, uh, familiarity, even when you're constantly in unfamiliar places. Hmm. Yeah. And you told me one time, because of course I don't really have any background with dogs that you feed him after the walk because the walk then becomes kind of like your, the dog's job. So the dog is rewarded with a meal mm-hmm. after the walk. And uh, I actually had a, a pet sitting slash dog walking job that was offered to me not too long ago. And the woman said that, you know, it was a puppy and she was having some training issues. They had taken the dog to different trainers and she was just kind of jumping up on people. So I suggested just from my limited experience with Sherlock that maybe Gumby might be the person who could uh, kind of bring those lessons home Um to this particular puppy. And that was, that was an interesting experience to say the least. Gumby, how did you feel about that? Uh, it taught me a lot. Um, it was great to get that money. Um, but the training was frustrating because I think in, um, especially like upper middle class homes, we're taught Everybody in our culture has taught this, but it's really adopted there to think of things almost like devices. You know, I I think they wanted me to fix their dog. And I told them right from the first night that it was about the relationship with the dog. Mm. Um, 
So I trained her pretty quickly not to jump up on me. I'd just stick my knee out whenever she started coming up, and she learned not to jump up on me. But she would still jump up on the family. They wouldn't do the routines. You know, I'd say, stick your knee out, and they wouldn't do that. Um, so it was frustrating. You know, I just tried to kind of roll with it, like, all right, this training is not going to go the way I was hoping it would because... You know, they don't understand that they need to work on their relationship with the dog. There's nothing wrong with the dog. They need to communicate what they want from the dog. Um, so, yeah, one of the things I wanted to talk about is, and I've run into this in so many um, fashions in my life, but animal lovers. There's a lot of people who call themselves animal lovers, but they don't respect animals. Um, in our culture, I think we're taught, and actually reading Derek Jensen got me thinking a lot, a lot more about this, that we turn everything into an object. So as a contrast, think of a indigenous tribe. There's certain things that seem to be common with almost every indigenous people before our culture gets to them and starts to alter them. And one of those things is they live in a very subjective world. And by that, I mean everything is treated as alive, as its own autonomous life, its individual. The wind is thought to be alive. The rocks, you speak to them before you move them. You talk to the plants as you pick them, um, and definitely the people within their own tribe. So it's a world full of living beings, subjects. Now think of our culture. Even if you love nature, think of the words that crop up. Natural resources. What an objectifying word. Um, you know, we, we turn things that could be seen as alive, that could be respected into objects to be used. Fire pit. Yeah. We were talking about the word fire pit. You know, even that we were sitting around the fire drinking wine last night and, uh, Teresa was, you know, talking about the council of rocks around the fire. And I was thinking, wow, you know, whether you believe that these rocks are actually having a meeting or not. What a potent way to talk about it, because as soon as I sink back to the word fire pit, there's another object. It's a tool to be used. There's no recognition of life in that. It's just structure. Mm. And, you know, without, at the risk of going into too much of a tangent, here's a whole podcast in itself is objectifying. Um, we do this everywhere. We objectify our dogs, which is the relevant part of this podcast. We treat them like objects. We, we say we love our dog, but then when you treat it like a, a piece of furniture, we don't bother to communicate with the dog. Um, Caesar Milan had a lot of good things to say about this. He says, see your dog first as an animal rather than a human. At first, I thought that was very anthropocentric, like, and I don't know how he means it necessarily. But I realized it doesn't mean I'm looking down at the dog. It means I'm realizing the dog is not a human. What that guy at the bar started me thinking years before reading Caesar. Then see your dog as a dog. There are certain things that, of all the animals, are unique to a dog. Pack hierarchy. You know, not every animal wants to be in a pack. Think of a cat. But a dog, every dog, has a certain wiring. They want to be part of a pack. They want to be in that group, a close group. Then see your dog as breed. Sherlock is half boxer and half German short-haired pointer. Um, boxers are known for being guard dogs, so I just can't really... I have not been able to teach it out of him, even if he barks sometimes when people show up and it annoys me, because he takes his role of guard dog very seriously. So I need to understand that about Sherlock. And also flatulence. Boxers fart <laughs> a lot. 
So, oh my God, he will clear a house. Thank. That's one of the reasons we gave up our home. We didn't. We didn't want to bottle those dog farts anymore. Um, might have been a mistake moving into a van, but you can imagine what that's like. Um, and he's a German short-haired pointer. That's a hunting dog. So Sherlock loves to fetch, and he loves going in the water. He will just fetch um, balls and sticks and whatever else we throw, as long as we'll throw them. And after all that, then see your dog as an individual. So within all the boxer pointer mixes, there are things about Sherlock that are unique. I have found that to be super helpful in dealing with dogs. Animal, dog, breed, individual. When I come at it from that way, I'm right. I'm right there with Caesar Milan and saying and thinking that that's a very good way to approach your dog. And if you're picking out a dog, um, you know, think of that. The breed, like, what is that dog going to match your lifestyle? I don't really go picking out dogs by breed. Most of my dogs kind of I find, and I would imagine a lot of homeless people have the same uh, experience. But when you can consider the breed, you know, if you're a super active person, you've got a basset hound. That might be a bad mix. (laughs) If you're a super chill person and you've got a husky, that might be a bad mix. Mm. Um, Another thing Cesar Milan says is calm, assertive. That's the kind of energy you want. And I don't always succeed in that, but when I do, I have good results. So I try to be calm and I recognize that I am the leader. There's no question about that. No, we're not doing what you want. You know, and then I don't go overboard. You know, I don't just try to boss him around for the sake of being the boss. But he needs to understand at all times the assertiveness. I am the leader, but not in a bullying way. That's the calm, calm, assertive. The great thing about being homeless with a dog, as I said, time. you got so much time, so use it. That, that It is worth the investment to train your dog to develop routines so your dog recognizes um, when you need him to do things. Because if you don't, you're not going to be able to take your dog with you. Your dog's going to be a problem instead of a benefit. Um, consistency and repetition. Those are two things that I think are very important with training a dog. If something's not okay, it's always not okay. If something is okay, it is, it's always okay. For instance, when we were in the trailer, sometimes there'd be times, um, that we didn't want him on the furniture, but then when we feel like, you know, it's, it'd be nice to snuggle with Sherlock right now. Let's let him on the couch. That seems okay from a human perspective because we understand the human rules in the human world with this human piece of furniture. He's not a human. It's confusing to him. And so then we'd walk in, Sherlock would be on the couch. We'd get angry. It was really bad training. It's good to have things that are always okay and never okay. For instance, it was never okay for him to wander outside of the yard. Mm. He understood the boundaries of the yard very well. Not going to say he never wandered outside of the yard, but it was very rare. Um, it was never okay for him to be on the bed. Yeah. So consistency, that really helps you with your dog. It's going to help your dog feel secure. You're going to have a calmer dog that wants to listen to you and you're helping him feel safe. And it's going to help you feel better because your dog's going to do more often what you want and repetition. Um, I always train him to sit. Like whenever I feed him, I hold up my finger. That means sit. And I wait for him to look at me. Any chance I get that he's going to look to me for direction, I want to repeat that over and over. If I'm walking in the woods down a trail, um, often I'm walking with somebody and we take a fork and Sherlock takes the other way because he runs ahead sometimes, they want to call Sherlock. And I always try to say, no, no, don't call him. Let him like realize he's gone the other way because that's another way I'm training him to look for me to me for direction. Um, I want him to look at my eyes. So every time he eats, he sits, he looks at my eyes. Every time I throw a ball for him, 
he sits, he looks at my eyes. And I feel like that consistency, that repetition also helps him be well-trained. Um, I can walk with Sherlock down the road without a leash in the middle of a city and he's fine. You know, I, I still got to pay attention. You know, he can be distracted by a chili dog right on the other side of the curb, which could get him in trouble. Um, <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I make him sit at a road before I cross it. I cross. He doesn't cross the road until I say, okay, he's really good to, in so many ways. He doesn't shut up when I want him to. If, uh, you know, there's something he thinks needs to be barked at and I say, Sherlock, shut up. And often when you're homeless, you don't want to give away where you're at. You know, part of your, your strategy is to not be noticed. That can be frustrating. That's something that I'm just struggling with his boxer side, and I have not figured my way through that. Mm. Can you think any other ways that Sherlock's not trained well? Oh, geez. I mean, <laughs> like I said, I don't know that much about dogs. I was really surprised that he ate shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and not just other animals, like humans. And that's gross, so I don't know... Like, how many dogs out there? I guess all of them maybe do that at some point. But I have to realize that um, whether I know it or not, he might be doing that. Yeah, and again, that's gross by human standards. I don't really think of that as, like, badly trained. I mean, I don't really oppose him eating crap. <laughs> um, even though I don't want to only give him a big sloppy kiss afterwards or anything. Mm-mm. Or to eat my crap. That, that kind of grosses me out. <laughs> um, I really don't want my food coming back to me in that form. Um but let's see. So, yeah, I would say definitely keep in mind that your dog is a subject, not an object. You know, I, I see a lot of Facebook memes lately about rape and rape culture. And to me, this is tied into the same thing. Like, you know, it says, instead of telling women how not to get raped, why don't we tell guys not to rape? Yeah, definitely. But at the same time, I think most guys are being told not to rape. And why does it keep happening? Because we live in a rape culture. We live in a culture of objectification. We objectify each other. You know, the employer objectifies his the people working for him. Oh, you can't do your job? Well, I'm sorry, I can't keep you hired. You know, like, I got to replace you. You're an object. You're a part of a machine. I don't find it that strange that people end up raping each other in an environment like that. And I don't think that will ever leave our culture. I just don't. I don't think you're going to tell boys enough not to rape. And then they go to school and they go to work and they're taught that we all rape everything. We rape the land. We rape our resources. We rape each other for time. We rape each other for uh, whatever we can use each other for, money. And then... I don't think that line, it's sort of like the consistency with the dog. You know, if I tell Sherlock never get it, to get on the couch, he might learn it. If sometimes he can get on the couch, he's going to be confused. <laughs> I feel like we're the same way. Like, oh, this kind of rape is bad, but we can rape everything else. And I think that's why guys are being told in movies, in all of our propaganda, every power we have not to rape. And uh, it's still going to happen unless we change deeper things. But... Anyway, objectification versus subjectivity. I want to move closer to that idea that we're all alive, we're all valuable, and I don't want to objectify anybody for my own means when I can help it, when I can remember to be better. Um, yeah, and Teresa wanted to talk a little bit about food. Well, yeah, and I just, uh, one more uh, one more idea, I guess, I wanted to share was, Gumby, you mentioned that the idea you had for teaching Sherlock to sit and 
every time, like right before he crosses a road or even a path to sit and then you walk all the way to the other side and he's watching you and then you say, okay, and then Charlotte comes across the road safely. I just thought that was really impressive. Um, and you said you got that, you saw that from uh, a person that might have also been homeless? Maybe. I don't know. I just saw some random guy in Durham do that with, I think, a pit bull. You know, he made the dog sit, cross the road, and then the dog, like, came when he said to. And I, was, I started wondering, I wonder if I can do that with Sherlock. I was living out of my car at the time, no job, plenty of time. And we just went to a quiet place, and I started practicing, like, especially that day. I had nothing better to do, so over and over. And he got the idea pretty quick. I was surprised that he could do that, so. So that's that repetition. And, and while it might seem like, you know, you're bossing the animal around and objectifying it, I just feel like that gives Sherlock so much more freedom. Um, whether you live in a home or you, a house or you live in a van, Sherlock can walk around and know, like, this is the procedure. Before we cross the road, we sit and we don't get hit by a car. So it's also helping him to stay alive. And the other thing that I was really impressed with when Gumby told me was that Sherlock is now eight years old and he has never had food um, that Gumby or I don't know who else has purchased from a store. So this dog has been completely on um, dumpster dived dog food as well as scavenged food. And I've witnessed it myself going to various pet stores, look in the dumpster and there are occasionally bags full of food, but oftentimes, you know, there might be like a little bit of food and then you hit it big. So in the time that I've known Gumby and Sherlock, it's been, uh, all food from the dumpster. Yeah, all the a time. former student turned me on to that, to start looking behind pet stores and Yep, it's been going for almost nine years now. And you just recently made a, a list of food from um, several internet websites that were like good for dogs. And we'll leave that up to you to research because we're not vets and, and each dog is different. But there's like so many foods that we come across in the dumpster uh, that can also be used for Sherlock's food. So maybe we have an abundance of something and we're like, man, this is just going to go bad if we don't eat it. And now we know that certain foods can be uh, given to Sherlock, our dog. So Gumby, did you want to share with that? Yeah, Teresa was saying we'd leave it to you to research, and there's definitely a lot of room for your own research. But I do want to say a few things. Um, now that we've moved into a van, I can't stockpile dumpster dive dog food the way I used to. So I've had to explore, like, since I can only carry a little bit of dog food and I might not run into dog food before I run out, what else can I mix in? Because I might not find dog food in the dumpster, but there's a lot of other stuff dogs eat that I do find in the dumpster. I've made a long list of things to look out for, but I just want to mention a couple things that find I find a lot and wound up wind up in Sherlock's food. Um, eggs. I've been feeding him raw eggs. Um, whenever we find eggs, and we find eggs often, let's crack open an egg, put it in there. I've found conflicting sources. Some people say don't feed your dog raw eggs, that it can inhibit some kind of vitamin intake. Um... So now I'm going to start hard-boiling eggs more. If I do have an egg and extra eggs, um, add that to Sherlock's food. He loves it. Cheese. I find cheese a lot. That's something that they say be careful with. You know, you can give your dog, just like a person, high cholesterol and everything. Mozzarella is best because it's apparently lower fat. Um, but that's something often finds its way into Sherlock's food. Um, 
cottage cheese. Find a lot of that. Haven't started using that yet, but I know I'm going to find cottage cheese soon. That's going to go in this food. Blackberries. Blackberry season is coming up in North Carolina pretty soon. Good Lord. I can definitely keep a, put a lot of blackberries in this food. Apples. Um, I had just been dicing up the whole apple. I've recently found out that you're not supposed to feed them seeds um, for cyanide, I think. Uh, Sherlock has not had a problem, but nonetheless, since I read that, I'm going to start maybe uh, being more careful of minimizing the seeds that find their way into his food. But just all kinds of stuff. Like, um, we hit a lot of continental breakfast at hotels, and there's always bananas. Like, I always walk out with a banana. That's something apparently good in dog food. So, yeah, do the research. Um, you'll find a long list of stuff if you're homeless um, or about to move into your car with a dog that can substitute, can round out that food. And he'll actually probably be eating better than a lot of these uh, wealthy people that are buying like the high grade dog food um, mm -hmm. because he's going to have all this good stuff. Yogurt. Um, as long as there's not, what is it that you don't want in the yogurt? Oh shoot. What is that? Xylitol. Xylitol is poisonous to dogs. So if there's a sugar-free um, anything, be really careful about the, the sugar substitute because um, it can wreak havoc in humans' systems, but it can kill a dog, the xylitol. Oh, yeah, and uh, let's see. So since I've known Sherlock, he's <laughs> he's been through so many different ordeals, but he just keeps on ticking. So um, there was a time when, oh, he had uh, <laughs> been bitten by a copperhead snake. And Gumby, I was still working at the time, Gumby sent me a text message on our flip phones when we still had those. And he was just like, you know, this is happening. Um, can you research what to do? And I found out, again, you know, do your own research. But we gave him some Benadryl and also used, what was it, plantain? Uh, like a plantain soak on his leg where he got bit. And his leg was like ballooned up like hell. And he survived it. I'm not saying that it'll work for every dog, but uh, considering that the vet procedure might cost thousands upon thousands of dollars, if you're looking at your dog dying and or just suffering in general, you might want to research like how many Benadryl pills you might be able to give your size dog. Um, and we found Benadryl in the dumpsters uh, during hippie Christmas at the university, so we didn't even have to buy that. Um as far as other health issues, there's um, there's always like fleas or ticks to be concerned about. Gumby, do you have any additional things you want to say about health of the dog? Um, well, tied into fleas and ticks, I have really like escaping society, dropping out of the system. I found uh, vets, like veterinarians. Um, just as bad as the rest of the medical establishment. For instance, if I want to get him these pills, like Sherlock gets in the water a lot, so that's probably the best thing, they demand that I bring him in for a checkup. Now, I've pressed them. I've said, like, well, what if I don't have the money? Is the pill going to hurt him um, if he doesn't get a checkup? They didn't want to answer the question. I asked over and over. We went around and around. Finally, they admitted no. So to me, that's a really ugly thing. Like, that pisses me off. I mean, th this is the person that's supposed to care about my dog. So if I don't want to check him for worms and everything, and I'm not saying he shouldn't be checked for worms, but what if I don't have the money? They're going to keep me from having a pill that will make him more comfortable. Um, so I've gotten pretty damn disgusted with that. I'm still exploring ways to fight bugs 
One of the ways we're fighting bugs right now with him is the same way we're fighting the heat with us, is staying in the mountains during the hot months. Um, there's still stuff out here, but not as much as the Piedmont. So that's one of our strategies we're trying. I recently found two little packets of uh, like flea and tick drops in an abandoned house, so next month he's going to get the last of those. We have had luck before just asking on neighborhood like uh, swap Facebook pages and places like that. Often there are places that will help you that say, you know, oh, okay, we've got some free flea and tick drops. Dumpster diving, you never know what you're going to find. I have yet to find a Soresto collar, anything really handy as far as bugs in a dumpster. And shampoo, I mean, we don't really have a place to shampoo him, and I've always kind of bathed him by getting in the river anyway. Um, but yeah, trying to get him in the river often, which also fights odors. That's another big thing, living with a dog in a van, uh, just keeping him clean. Yeah, one other thing about health. Um, obviously, wherever you're at, whatever city it is, you're, you're going to need to do some research. But we've found in Durham, North Carolina, that they do have occasionally um, rabies vaccinations for either free or way cheaper than going to the vet. And so if you happen to be in an area where they might have these uh, like community service uh, rabies vaccinations, they might even do other things like checkups for the dog. That could save you some serious cash and have your dog protected as well as you. And um, <laughs> yeah, Gumby mentioned that Sherlock is a um, half boxer. So, oh man, his um, odors... <laughs> like we we pretty much go in the water every day up here in the mountains and even when we were living in Durham, North Carolina, uh, we would try to go at least bathe Sherlock in the river, I don't know, a couple times a month if we could. Any any chance that we have to dip him in water just to like keep the body odor down and keep any bugs off of him um is a good thing, but living in a van with a dog is definitely a challenge for smelling good. And, um, I mean, having, I guess having expectations of smelling like flowers is just off the table. I try to keep my clothes, uh, contained a little bit more than Gumby. And I don't think we smell bad, but we definitely air <laughs> out. Well, we definitely air out things as much as we can. So right now we're, we're up in the mountains. We've got, uh, fresh water to wash our things in and hang them up on the line in the sunshine and the wind. And, uh. We're talking about um, potentially implementing some more incense of sorts, whether it's a smudge stick that we make from um, mint and motherwort or or cedar, cedar um, in the van so that there's a little bit more freshness to it while you're in an enclosed space with an animal. Yeah, and uh, a lot of it is resigning yourself to, you know, just knowing that the dog in your life, it's going to be messier, so... If you got a dog in your life, your life is going to be messier. There's dog hair. There's all the stuff they track in. They don't have our standards of clean such as they are. Um, but I want to talk a little bit and um, about benefits. You know, of course, a dog provides pack loyalty like you can't find in a person. I mean, just complete, unwavering loyalty. Security, you know, Sherlock's got sharper senses than we do, so... Um, he picks up on stuff. You know, when people were camping out here, he's the first one to know somebody's walking along the trail. Usually, sometimes I'm surprised at the stuff that can sneak up on him, but he's getting kind of old, I guess. Um, and uh, a lot of people, a lot of the people that are the most likely to try to steal from you are the people that are the most afraid of dogs. So 
he's pretty good security in that sense. You know, if I have him in the, the van, I know I can leave the windows rolled down and the doors unlocked because there's rarely a person that's going to want to steal from the van that's going to take on Sherlock. Um, so he's really good security. Panhandling, like I already said, I wanted to actually explore this more right before this podcast, but it didn't turn out to be that kind of week. But I think a dog is a huge resource. There I go again with my objective word. But um, really helps panhandling. People have more sympathy for dogs than people. Um, We're just so tired of each other. Uh, (laughs) I think, you know, and I I don't want to have that taken in the wrong way. There's plenty of people helping other people. But, God, the population is growing. We're just all looking around, watching each other just suck the world dry. And it's getting hotter. It's getting uglier. And then we see the dogs. And, you know, they seem like innocent children. And in a lot of ways, they are. So I think people are much more generous with a dog. And we find it easier, too, to help animals, I think. Just, I don't know, there's just something in us that's, I'm, I don't know. Like, I just feel that... Uh, we have more sympathy for them. And, and Gumby, you often comment uh, on how many people smile when they see Sherlock off leash. Uh, cause it maybe reminds them of times gone by where people didn't need to put their dog on a leash and, and had that, that established relationship with their animal. Yeah. I mean, we make quite a sight sometimes walking down the road, Sherlock's off leash, we're barefoot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some people of course kind of look the other way. (laughs) They're afraid we're going to ask him for money. But uh, I see a lot of people smile. I think it reminds them of a time, you know, that there were a lot more people just walking around casually, um, that life doesn't have to be so uptight. And I'm wondering about how much a dog helps hitchhiking. I've always thought that the dog, like taking Sherlock with us hitchhiking would be a huge deterrent. But not long ago, we were actually backpacking, not even trying to hitchhike. And a guy picked us up with Sherlock. Um, So I'm going to explore that more. I'd love to hear from anybody that hitchhikes with a dog what your experience has been in contrast. And that guy that picked us up had a pristine, clean Subaru. Um, So it it often surprises us um, just hitchhiking in general, but also with a dog. Like, wow, you're going to pick up us? Like, he just went in a nasty mud puddle, and you're just going to pick us up. So, uh, again, sympathy with the animals. Um, some challenges that we have with the van life, especially, is um, in the summertime heat. So we mentioned in a previous podcast getting these rain guard, rain deflectors, so that we can keep the windows cracked even if it's raining um, in the event that we want Sherlock to uh, just be in the van. And that's a that's another thing is when you have an animal, you have to consider, like, maybe there are places I might not be able to take him, whether it's some sort of a no dogs allowed park or a farmer's market or just some indoor space that doesn't allow dogs. So you have to consider um, where you're going to, to put your dog if you're if you can't leave them in a home. And if your home is a van, you want to also consider the health of the animal in the heat. Um, yeah. Um, as far as accessories, what do we carry with us, Teresa? We don't carry much. We have a, um, a milk crate uh, kind of rigged up storage system that Gumby saw a picture of, and he, he did it just from stuff that we found. And so the accessories are pretty minimal. Like we have a one leash that Gumby's had for a while. I'm not sure if somebody else bought it for you or not, but Sherlock's got his uh, his collar and, a, and an actual kind of store-bought leash. And then Gumby's made two other leashes 
out of cordage that we've found just walking and being at campsites and stuff. So um, that allows Sherlock to have a little bit more uh, leeway. We don't necessarily want him to have to be on a leash, but if he is, at least he can have uh, a further reach from the van. And we have a bowl. We used to have two, but we really only needed one um, for his food. We've found some treats in the dumpster as well as uh, our food, and we keep his food in just a kind of like a plastic storage box. And we also have another container right now. We just have the the bag all kind of taped up and wrapped up in a plastic bag inside of our uh, cargo box on top of the van. And uh, he's got his tags for rabies and an ID tag um, that has Gumby's email address on it since we don't have phones. Sherlock is constantly just wanting us to throw sticks, so we don't really have that much in the way of toys, but um, if your animal likes to go fetch anything, um, lacrosse balls and tennis balls, you can often find around tennis courts or, or fields. Yeah, I just walk around parks and find lacrosse balls. They are ideal. <laughs> the only reason I carry a tennis ball is because they float if I want to play with him in the water. Mm-hmm. And then the final accessory I happened to get after Sherlock had a bad case of fleas a couple years ago, and that was a comb, like a flea comb. But I honestly don't brush him that much. We just rely mostly on uh, going in the rivers and cleaning him up. And then um, if we do need to take him to the vet to get those pills, we do that. But it's it's definitely a cost. And yeah, that's about it. So just minimal amounts of accessories. And um, we have found... <laughs> We have found, like, dog costumes in the dumpster behind PetSmart, <laughs> so we, we dressed Sherlock up as Santa Claus one time and took a picture, and that was it. But no, we don't dress him up in any jackets or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, and one thing I wanted to say about the canine group, uh, um, I was taking this naturalist training course called the Kamana Naturalist Training Course with Wilderness Awareness School. And through Wilderness Awareness School, one of the exercises they have to teach you tracking, um, how to read the forest, was to pick one animal and get to know it really well. And they recommended a canine because canines' footprints are some of the most expressive. If you want to learn to read emotion, um, how the animal's holding its head, those details of like really fine tracking canines, whether it's a coyote, wolf if you're lucky to be in an area that has them still, um, fox, um, or a domestic dog, you know, that's another role that canines have played in my life is a really good teacher for tracking. So I didn't know we had this much to say about a dog. We're going, we try to shoot for an hour at the most with these podcasts. We're going a little bit long and I want to end this podcast since I began with a story with another story. Um, this is another true story. I was in middle school and I was dealing with a lot of these issues that led to escaping society. Just um, looking around, seeing the madness, nothing made sense. Nobody was offering me alternatives. Anytime I tried to seek guidance, I'd get more often than not from school counselors. Just, well, you know, stick to it. Here's how you fit in. It's going to pay off. You go to college, you get the money, you know, and that's what it's all about. You get the money because that equals security. Never mind that whether in the process of getting what they called security, I was helping destroy the planet that I really loved. So I was dealing with these issues, and I was getting really angsty. I had the leather jacket. I was, like, not doing my schoolwork. I was pissed. I was just angry. I didn't fit in, and I didn't know what to do with that. So we had this assembly where I don't remember what grade I was in in middle school, maybe eighth. 
We got brought into this school gymnasium, and there was this African storyteller, and I was like, oh boy, here we go, another, you know, event, school event, and I'm just kind of sitting there with my leather jacket, my arms crossed, just kind of non-participating, as was my way back then. And he began to tell this story, and I find it so interesting looking back that talking to a group of middle schoolers, he picked this story. I only learned much later that it was based on an Aesop's fable called The Dog and the Wolf. And the gist of the story is this. Long ago, Dog and Wolf were brothers, and they traveled together, and they shared everything. And they had a really hard winter where food was scarce, and they were suffering. Dog had realized that he'd smelled food coming from the human villages, and he came upon a plan. He told Wolf, I think I can go and trick the people out of their food. And Wolf said, I don't know, that looks pretty dangerous. And Dog said, well, don't you worry, I think I got this figured out. When I figure it out, I'm going to come back, I'm going to bring you food, I'm going to show you how to get food. So Dog, he goes down to the human village, and all the people are scared of him. They've never, I mean, a dog was a wild animal back then. It's like if a bear walked into your, your neighborhood now. They were fascinated and scared. But Dog applied his first trick. He started waving his tail all over the place, back and forth, back and forth. Well, this looked pretty helpless, pretty harmless, so the people kind of smiled and came a little closer. And Dog applied a second trick. He got down on his front legs and got really low and stuck his butt up in the air and really started wiggling his tail. And people kind of laughed and they thought it was cute. And then Dog rolled over on his back and began to wiggle. And now he really looked harmless. And sure enough, people began to throw him little pieces of food. Ha! Dog thought. Here it is. I figured it out how to get food. Well, one family in particular really loved Dog. And they invited him home. They brought him back to his house. They opened the door. And there was a big warm fire. They made a little bed in front of the fire for Dog. And Dog was so smitten. It was the first time in a month that he'd felt any kind of warmth. And he had a full belly. And they laid out some water next to the fire. And he was so comfortable that he didn't even notice when the door shut behind him. Mm. Click. So, the next day, after a good night's sleep, Dog goes to the door, notices shut. He's never been in captivity before. But the people wake up, they take Dog out, but they put something around his neck. It's the first collar. And instead of Dog going where he wants to and coming back when he wants to, they take Dog to a little tree and tie him to the tree. And it's not a bad tree. It's a big shady tree and it's a pretty yard. But all the same, Dog can't help but miss that freedom that he so recently had. He doesn't necessarily want to be right under that tree. But isn't it worth it? I mean, there's food, there's fire. These people are really nice to him. Well, he quickly falls into a rhythm. This goes on day after day until one day a rabbit runs across the yard and something in Dog stirs. He remembers that part of him that used to travel with Wolf and just for a moment, something wild rises up in him and he pulls and he pulls on that leash and suddenly one little weak spot gives and pow! He's off. He's chasing that rabbit into the forest, over the hills, across the creek. He's chasing, chasing, chasing. The rabbit dives into some bushes and he's gone. Dog looks around, and oh my God, he's free for the first time, and he doesn't remember how long. And oh my God, he remembers his brother Wolf. He never came back to teach Wolf how to get food. So, Dog, he sniffs the air, and he begins his, his journey. He, he tracks, and he looks, and he looks, and he tracks, and he finally finds the trail, and he follows it. And after another half a day, there's Wolf. Wolf sniffs him, says, you smell strange. And Dog says, well... That's the shampoos they wash my fur with. But look how fat I am. Look how much food I have. But Wolf, he's not looking at Dog's fat belly. He looks at his neck and says, well, what's that? 
He said, well, well that, that, that's a collar, Wolf. And Wolf says, well, what's a collar for? Well, they need the collar to, to tie me to the tree. Tie you to a tree? Why do they tie you to a tree? Well, they're afraid I might, might get away. And Wolf looks at him, and Dog is feeling very shameful and, and shy right now. And he says, but you don't understand, Wolf. I get fed. I get comfort. I get warmth. I get everything that I need. I get everything that I want. Don't be a fool. Come back with me. You can do the same thing. And Wolf shakes his head sadly and says, Oh, dog, you don't realize what you've done. You've traded your hunger, your freedom for captivity. You're a prisoner and you don't even know it. A comfortable prisoner is still a prisoner. And with that, dog and wolf parted ways. And they've never been friends since. Wolf, sometimes he's hungry, sometimes he's cold, sometimes he's very uncomfortable, but he is free as every creature was meant to be free, born on this planet. Dog, he's much more comfortable. He's pampered. He's become all kinds of forms and shapes, and he does all kinds of things for treats. But he's a prisoner. He's given up his freedom. And at this point, that storyteller, that African storyteller, looked at us on the bleachers and said, you have a choice. You can either be the dog or the wolf. Mm. And oh my God, I couldn't believe he told that story because the wolf isn't the one that gets the good grades and, and stays in school and does what he's told and gives up his freedom. The wolf is the one who goes out. I always was already thinking about being a hobo. And that was the wolf. And that really helped me along. The next time I heard that story was years later when I was in Idaho taking a wolf tracking expedition. And we only heard the wolves howl twice during the week we were out there. We intentionally were trying not to see the wolves. We didn't want to disturb them. We wanted to read their signs, to read the clues they left behind and respect their privacy. The wolves howled once on the first night we were there. And towards the end of the week, they told that story. And right as the story ended, as if on cue, all the hills lit up with wolf howls. And it was such a magical thing. So I invite everybody else, you know, ask yourself, are you the dog? Are you, are you choosing comforts over a future, over the wildness, over the most beautiful free things? Or are you that wolf? Are you willing to make some sacrifices for a greater good? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's the end of our podcast. Mm -hmm. And I hope it's helpful um, living with a dog if you're on the streets, homeless, or just living with a dog, period. Um, if you have any questions... Please contact us if you have any stories to share. Um, and we now have a YouTube channel and a website. Um, we record these about a week in advance. So if you do try to contact us and it takes a couple weeks for us to get back to you, um, please be patient. Like I said, we're out here in the mountains living out of a van. Um, things take some time with us. We're not plugged in. And Teresa, you want to say anything more about our YouTube channel and website? Oh, sure. Um, we made it kind of simple, I hope, for anyone that wants to contact us, check out our YouTube channel or listen to the podcast. So the website is www.escapingsociety, that's all one word, dot weebly, W-E-E-B like boy, L-Y dot com. So www.escapingsociety dot weebly dot com. And we just used that because it was a, a free website builder and uh, it has a, a listen button for the podcasts. It has a link for a YouTube video and you can check out the YouTube channel for others. And it also has a contact form. So if you feel like 
you want to um, write to us, you can do that on the website. All right, thanks. Be good to your dog. He's probably wiser than you. See you next time.